They said it could never be done. We don't know who said that, but they said it. Yes, it's episode 159 of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And boy, I can tell you right from the get-go, we've got a packed show for you. Haven't we, Andy? Quite well. It's going to be an interesting one when it gets to the reviews, uh, particularly for the main review, isn't it? Because uh, yeah, we, uh, we might be coming I... from different places. Yes, uh, but yeah, we've got. Uh, yeah, we promised it last week, so we're going to take a look at the um, Oscars. Yeah, it's basically we're a week behind everyone else, but you know, it gives us time to think about it and get, gives us time to like explore it. I don't see it as a week behind. I see no. it as a week to have matured our thoughts. This week, not a lot that's gone on in my life this week, except. Um, I had an invite to the streaming X-Men 60th anniversary celebration from Marvel. Okay. Uh, being part of the Marvel Unlimited subscriber base, I got an invite to it a couple like about a month ago. So I booked my slot on that Zoom call the other night. Forgot all about it until I'm just locking up at work and my phone alert saying, your Zoom call is about to start. It's like, oh no, I'm at work. Uh, so I was literally sat on the bus watching the live stream all the way home and then like got in and <laughs> Got in and streamed it onto the TV as well. It's similar to what they did. Remember last year when they did the Spider-Man one that I yeah. commented on? It was exactly the same kind of setup. Uh, they had writers' interviews, like writers' roundtable discussion with names such as Chris Claremont, artists such as uh, Rob Field and Mark Silvestri, um, which, oh, man, his artwork was fantastic. It, it defining for the X-Men. Mark Silvestri, yeah, I, uh, one of my favourite X-Men artists. In fact... I got into a bit of a discussion on Twitter about about X Men artists, and uh, there was there was one guy he took over from John Byrne, and John Byrne was of course the uh, for the me the, the the legend X Men at that point. Uh, it was at its at its best, and I don't think it's ever been as good. But there was an, an artist called Paul Smith who took over, yeah, who was uh, who was great, and and I was trying to find out what happened to to Paul Smith because he. Did bits and pieces, but never had a, a massive run again. Did Doctor Strange for a little while. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, got into a chat on that. Walt and Louise Simonson were both on the panel as well. Jonathan Hickman. Um, all talk about favourite character arcs, uh, favourite story elements. And with the artists in particular, the Astley Field and Sylvester, you know, what was your favourite chapters of the X-Men history that you worked on? And Sylvester was just like, Inferno. Because as an artist, getting a chance to just be completely creative and have fun, you know, post boxes trying to eat people and like warping buildings and just having, you know, there was no restrictions on what they could do. It was like, go to town because this is supposed to be a twisted demonic presence invading the earth. And Leafield just kind of shrugged and went, I can't really argue with that because stuff like that is really good. Um, Leafield also took a chance to show off like, you know, because he, get, he gets a lot of bashing. Because his artwork can be a bit... Um, yeah, especially because he can't draw feet. A bit strange. And he can't draw Captain America's chest. Um, <laughs> oh, that was... That was uh, uh, that's never got old, that particular well, meme. It is worth realising, you know, he was responsible in that part of the 90s when so many new characters who've become huge hits were introduced. And Deadpool is yeah, one of yeah. his creations. Uh, but he's, he also like wanted to show off like how big a fan of X-Men he is. And so he's got like a slabbed issue one of X-Men signed by Stan Lee that he couldn't couldn't wait to take out and show off before the call end. It's like, oh, look, look, this is how much of a fan I am. I got Stan to sign this and it's been slabbed and just like, all right, 
cool, cool, cheers. Um, they, there was the anim- animated panel, animated series panel for the 90s animated one, which is getting a revival soon. Um, Eric and Julie Lee Wald talking about the thrill of when they were asked to bring such a property of the X-Men onto a brand new kids channel in the 90s called Fox Kids, which at that point in time, everyone thought Fox Kids was going to bomb because the already had Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon, who needs another cartoon channel? But it was because of things like the X-Men that drew in huge audiences of all ages yeah. that made it a success. And they just had, they said that they had fun being able to be creative with the stories that you'd seen in the comics, but throwing cameos from characters who they didn't really want to be using much in the animated series, but they knew that the fans would love them, which is why, particularly in the latter series, you started to just get one-off episodes with like a random character. It's like, oh, that's him from that issue. Grant Morrison did a good talk about his new oh, X-Men really? concept. His new X-Men started this modern era of the X-Men. Yeah. It was almost like a sort of reboot. And the secondary mutations idea was one of his ones. And do you know one of the reasons why the secondary mutations came in? Uh, no, I don't. I, I picked up those. I'd been out of the X-Men for some time. It got super confusing with all the offshoot titles the uh, uh, the opportunity for yeah. let's do multiple storylines based across all the issues. And I was out by then. I was kind of out when Chris Claremont left yeah, because he, he is the, the X-Men the scribe. So, X-Men scribe. Uh, so I was out, but I did, did come back in with Grant Morrison. So no, no, to answer your question in a roundabout way, I, I, I don't know. One of, the main, one of the main reasons was he wanted to use Colossus because he wanted like a tank kind of damage taker character. However, the status of Colossus, and he said on the call, it's like he can't remember what it was, but he wasn't allowed to use him because there was one reason or other. I think it was when he was dead. Remember that era when yeah, Colossus was Joss Whedon off? brought him back. So he had no chance for that. So he thought, well, why don't we mutate another character in an additional way to turn them into a tank? And so Emma Frost got diamond skin because she's all about glamour. She's all about like wealth and like, okay. you know, always represents that. And so he thought, give her diamond skin so it's kind of unbreakable. And there's my tank character. And that just spun off into the idea of new mutations for various mutants throughout the mutant universe. It sounds like you had a lot of fun with it, Andy. Yeah, he had a lot. Apparently, he had a lot of creative freedom because even though the films had started to pit, like get be a success around about the time that he started this run, the comics were in a mess. Yeah. I mean, you, you've already said that there were so many offshoots and spin offs. And, you know, it was all the back end of the 90s that Marvel had just gone all over the place with all their properties and had to rein it in. So he got a chance to just go, right, well, if we were going to start an X-Men title today, what would we do? And he made it more contemporary and fitting to the modern times, reflecting modern sensibilities, taking away it being all about big action battles every issue and stripping down to the bare bones characters in a sci-fi concept. His run was controversial with some, some fans. I got a lot from it. I loved what he did with it. Because I thought he grounded it a bit before, like, Joss Whedon came along and went, right, now that that's been grounded, let's get it back to the spandex and have fun. And managed to get it to where it is today, which I think the X-Men brand as a whole in the comics is a lot stronger than what it was. I haven't read it for years. I've dipped in and out to say that I was such an X-Men fan. And my X-Men love goes back to it appearing in as a secondary feature in the old British weeklies, which reprinted. Mm. In black and white, the American series, and I, I discovered the X Men then and loved them. They were kids, and they were uh, misfits, and all all the stuff that everybody talks about with the X Men. And then Chris Claremont's run was was amazing, and I enjoyed Joss Whedon's run on it. I thought that that yeah. brought it 
full circle back to being a fantastic title. But I've, I'm all over the place. I, I can't say that I've read the X-Men in, in, in Donkey's years. I did read the Ultimate X-Men, which I thought was a good um, a good mm. starting place to get back into it again. But no, I, I'm so out of it. I, I have no idea what the law is at the moment. You'd have a lot of catching up if you decided to jump back in it at the moment. I'm catching up thanks to Marvel Unlimited. And I've been jumping on some of the spin-over uh, crossover events going on to bring me up to speed and I'm, I'm now really really back on board with it yeah so these marvel event things that they do for the subscribers that's two of them that have sat sat on and they've been fascinating i always love getting an insight into the creative decisions that the artists the writers and all the teams involved there with some hints as much as they could give as to what the future looks for it and i look forward to them doing this again i'm, I'm hoping you know a few years from now in 2026, when we get to that another milestone for the Fantastic Four, that they'll do one based on my favourite family. Great little insight for any fanboys. And a great reason for subscribing to Marvel Unlimited, so you get these invites to them. Awesome. So uh, I want to thank people for their kind messages I've had over the week about the sad passing of my dear friend Keith Williams. And it was it was nice to play the show to people and uh, and and see it that dedication there so thank you to everybody for for all your lovely messages but i think it's now it's time to talk about our challenge because we set uh, a challenge based around last week what film came out in the year of your birth because we were talking about mm. as we are at the moment in our deep dives movies that came out in 1973 so andy what kind of a response did we get we had a response across the socials now before we get to the ones from the socials i just want to mention that one of the guys from work, Carl, intended to send through his list, but he's completely forgetful. So, Carl, I can remember vaguely that you said 1988 was your year and we'd had a brief discussion and 1988 was a good year. So, you know, I, I don't know what he'd narrow it down to, but if we look through it, there's things like Beetlejuice, Rain Man. Wow. Obviously, Die Hard came out that year. Coming to America, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Baron Munchausen. He had a great year of films. Uh, Young Guns was in that year, and you know what we, you know what our thoughts on Young Guns are. If yes. you listen to our deep dive all those years ago, he didn't get a message to me. He was going to send one through, but I just wanted to give a shout out for Carl because he was so giddy at the fact that he discovered so many films from his year that um, he'd forgotten came out when he was born. And we kind of got that on the socials as well that people were like, "Wow, I didn't realize what film yes. came out in the year that I was born." So UK film nerd looked up 1976, sorted by popularity. And wow, never realised so many classics were released. Rocky, Taxi Driver, Carrie, the list goes on. However, for someone who primarily loves science fiction in action, I'm picking all the President's Men. I don't know why, but I love that film. Maybe it's the conspiracy nature and how it all slowly becomes uncovered. That led me to films like Zodiac, Spotlight and Dark Waters. Some good choices in there. Really good one. But with him mentioning all the President's Men, uh, after I'd replied to him saying, oh yeah, it's really good, like finding the ones that came out on your year. I've just added, in addition, I've now added all the President's Men onto the list of films to deep dive on the show sometime in the coming and months. So we should. It's a, it's a fantastic, fantastic film. Mevs Matz, faves from the, the year of birth. Batman, Back to the Future Part 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, and Pet Cemetery. They've also included classics that they haven't seen. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, The Burbs, Heathers, Field of Dreams, Do the Right Thing, The Abyss, Sex, Lies and Videotape, Black Rain, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Shocker, Tango and Cash. Not sure if Shocker it deserves to be within the classics there, but yeah, I get what it's you're saying. It's a Wes Craven one, movie. You, you're allowed it, to talk about it. It's it's one that people refer to, even though it's not really a great film. But I mean, I love the whole idea of like 
recognising the films from your year of birth that you've not seen yet and you feel that you should have. Uh, as you know, it's a regular thing when I do my years of my life in films videos. Uh, Brian C. Burr, favourites from the year? Back to the Future, Brazil, Clue, The Goonies, Reanimator, Return to Oz, He-Man and She-Ra, Secrets of the Sword, and Trances. <laughs> that was a random He-Man and She-Ra thrown in there. And classics that they haven't seen, Cocoon, Kiss of the Spider-Woman, Police Story, Real Genius, Witness, and Yes, Madam. Have we done Brazil as a deep dive yet? We haven't, but but we should. I mean, it's it's an ever-growing list. But yeah, Brazil is certainly one that's worth talking about, just due to the controversy of the American cut. Aussie at Mastodon World, just looked up theirs, 1989. Many of the ones they've seen are excellence. UHF, Batman, Bill and Ted, Begotten, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. But their favourite is Do the Right Thing. But there's so many that they haven't seen. Um, Araton at Mastodon, born in 1970. Performance, Valerie and Her Week of Wonders, and Le Circle Rouge. I've not seen any of them. No. We also had another block. Thanks to uh, me reposting it out on Facebook, I got a few family and friends involved, including my mum, who got a bit confused and she thought that Wizard of Oz came out in 1947. I think it got reissued in 1947, yeah, yeah. but it was originally 1939. But I'll let you off for that, Mumsy, because I know how much you love that film. She always tells me about how when she was first took to see it, she was initially upset because it was in black and white. But then as soon as it does that through the doorway into the full expansion out to colour, and she's just loved it ever since because it just made her, as a young child, go, oh, seeing colour so vibrant on the screen. Elliot Lacey, 1994, is a winner. Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, Leon the Professional, Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, The Mask, Speed, True Lies, Forrest Gump, Clerks, Edward. Many of them have either been in our deep dives or are on our deep dive list. <laughs> oh, and you know what? And I remember going to see them at the cinema. I yeah, certainly I, I, can picture going to see Dumb and Dumber, at, um, see myself in the audience. Every single one of them, I was at that age where I was watching as many films as I could at the cinema, and every single one of them was first-time watchers at cinemas. My mum also threw in a few more that she's, once she actually researched 1947. Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. Uh, Road to Rio and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Not seen The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. But... I have. Uh, um, yes, I have. Rex Harrison. Yeah. And my little sister, and I, I can only feel that I failed completely as a big brother here because she's looked through 1983 and she's only really seen flash dance that kind of intrigued her, but she's not a fan. <laughs> and I, I just feel that I've generally failed because 1983 had films such as Scarface, Trading Places, Christine, Videodrome, Stephen King's Dead Zone, Monty Python's Meaning of Life, National Lampoon's Vacation, Rumblefish, Twilight Zone, the movie. I mean, Come where did on. it go wrong? <laughs> so, Helen, if you're listening, I am going to draw up a list of films that I think that you need to watch from 1983. Oh, Star Wars Return of the Jedi. I know how she's a huge Star Wars fan. And if she is listening, she now hates me forever. Okay. <laughs> so this has aged me. And here's a, a few from the year of my birth. The Great Escape. Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Cleopatra. The second James Bond movie from Russia with Love. Ooh. The first Pink Panther film with Peter Sellers. A Christmas classic, or it's always been a Christmas classic in my house, uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Nice. Just one of those films I can watch time and time again. Uh, my favourite Jerry Lewis movie, The Nutty Professor. And one of my all-time favourite horror movies, uh, Robert Wise's The Haunting. And the Roger Corman version of uh, The Raven. So, wow. I mean, I just now feel wow. so old. Day of the Triffids. The Day of the Triffids with uh, Howard Keel. Wow. The first one you mentioned so there, The Great Escape, we're covering on the deep dives in a couple of weeks. We are. 
We are because it is just such time a, a classic movie. <laughs> yeah, because that's when it was always on. And that's the thing about when, when you're slightly older, you always recognise these films from Christmases or Easter's or bank holidays. And, and It's a Mad Mad World came out in 1963. And that's always been sort of a, a kind of a Boxing Day film in my head. We talked about that as our a challenge over the Christmas period. So uh, fantastic. Thank you to everyone who took part in our socials challenge. What have we got for you this week? Okay, so this week uh, we're going to be talking about The Last of Us as we get to the very last episode. And as we said a few weeks ago, we would address it, talk about it. Now the series is done and we await season two. So video games, they've had a tricky transition to the big screen. Not all of them have been successful. In fact, most of them have been downright pants. But (laughs) is there a video game that you think would make a great big screen or small screen adaptation? Is there a video game that they should tackle that's not been done yet? Of course, for me, The Last of Us was always the kind of the holy grail. But what's your choice? What video game do you think could be made into a big screen or small screen adaptation? Jet Set Willy. <laughs> the story Jet of a man who's had a drunken party and trying to sort things out the next morning before his missus uh, kills him, basically. Ten years ago, I would have said Jim Carrey. Put Jim Carrey in that role, and there you go. You can, if it's successful, you can then do a prequel of Manic Miner. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Writes itself. <laughs> so you can get in touch with us across all of the socials, can't they, Andy? Yes, just just log on to Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, whatever you want to get in touch with us, and uh, let us know. Also, if you listen to us on Spotify, I do post the questions via Spotify, so you can reply reply to me via there. Fantastic. So let's talk about this week's show. So what have we got in this week's show? We're going to be doing this week's deep dive into the 1973 classic starred Robert Redford, Paul Newman, and it is The Sting. We have reviews aplenty. We're going to be talking about the last episode of The Last of Us. We've also both went to see Shazam this week, and uh, we're going we're gonna to have a fight later. Contrasting uh, reviews, maybe. <laughs> I also had a chance to see Pearl at the cinema this week. And also, I, I've broken what my rule for this year was, and I've watched a Sky original. Marlowe landed on Sky this week. We've got chat, we've got points of view, we've got the news, and this week's box office. So, when it came to the box office for this week, I was expecting to be talking about Shazam, Fury of the Gods, in the number one position. But surprisingly it's not done that and and i think we need to have a bit of a discussion as to why but andy what are the figures for this week well it did start the weekend looking very unpromising for shazam fury of the gods um however it did manage to finish in first place in the u.s in the end taking 30.1 million including the thursday night previews worth noting that they were predicting between 35 to 50 million initially on the opening of this 30 is not a good start. Scream 6 took 17.3 million for its second week, with Creed 3 in third place with 15.4 million. 65 was in fourth place with 5.9 million. And Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania still hanging in there by a thread in fifth place with 4.2 million. Here in the UK, pretty much more of the same. Shazam Fury the Gods in first place with a not very strong 2.3 million. Creed 3 in second place with 1.2 million. Scream 6 in third place, 987,000 added to its total. Hallelujah, 
brand new release from Pathé, 715,000 and 65 in fifth place with 567,000. Not a strong start for Shazam and maybe signs of troubles ahead. So an interesting week box office and I'm assuming next week that uh, John Wick part four is going to come in and probably rock those numbers up big time. But we'll just yes. have to wait and see because at the moment everything is is a bit of a surprise. I mean, sixty five didn't hit as high as it should. We've just talked about Shazam. Wow, these we're living in uncertain times for movies that we would have said traditionally would have done really well. And and are we seeing the blood in the water for the superhero movies? I think sixty five was always going to be an up, uphill battle with it because it, I don't think it was marketed very strongly. No, and it does come across like I even said in my review that it feels like the kind of film that you would have watched straight on Amazon or Netflix. It was like that kind of sci-fi approach. But John Wick's looking good on the tra- pre-release tracking, so we should be seeing an impact on that. And I think it's—I don't know with Shazam whether this is a direct result of the disinterest in DC that has been cultivated over the past few years because of the mess that it's been in. And it's not grabbing any audiences that way because it was marketed hugely, but no one's latched onto it. Or whether this is, uh, like you say, blood in the water around superhero films. We know that two years ago, Spielberg warned that superhero films could go the way of the Westerns, oversaturating the market. People get bored of them. Audiences move on. And this past year, the two biggest films have been pure blockbuster escapism. Avatar Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick, both of them playing on nostalgia. So it could be that audiences, general audiences, are shifting back to that 80s style of blockbuster mentality where they just want spectacle. Well, I mean, that would have fit in with 65, I think. And 65 would have delivered that sort of spectacle. I mean, 2022, I think it was the start when the superhero movies looked as though we, they were starting to falter at the box office compared to, to other genres. And you said Maverick itself. I think especially DC could have contributed to the superhero landscape, but it seemed to go wrong. Now, uh, the Batman, starring Robert Patterson, proved that that sort of neo-noir storytelling, that, that kind of gloomy atmosphere, even though it had, as, as you mentioned, multiple delays, grossed about 700 million. So that found a critical and a financial market. Yeah, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, uh, with a budget of 250 million, grossed 832 million at the box office but then we saw Doctor Strange we saw Thor Love and Thunder we saw Black Adam let's not count Mobius but we saw a decline in people's attention so I'm hoping that it's that it's not clearly because I'm a film geek but smaller films did really well films like Barbarian films like Black Phone so is this the end? Are we coming close to what we always anticipated that eventually superhero movies would reach a natural conclusion? And then, as you said, oversaturation of the market, and especially with films from Sony and lesser movies, even from DC, have sort of brought that on quite a lot. So we've seen, you know, Black Adam underperformed. It looks like uh, Shazam Fury of the Gods is going to seriously underperform, which <laughs> doesn't bode well for the future of that character in the upcoming reboot of DCU. But it's been the same over at Marvel, which, you know, this started in Eternals in 2021. Now we get, we were just on the back end of the pandemic. Cinemas were still not opening up. But that only finished worldwide on 402 million. 
Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is doing better than that. It's approaching 500 million, but it's still not good for what is the third. I mean, you can get it with Eternals. These were unknown characters. Yeah. It was a completely different approach for Marvel. It was always going to be a risk. But Ant-Man is an established audience. People know who this character is, but people don't care. And it is bullying times for the superhero franchises. And Marvel have already reacted to this, as we've mentioned a few times on the news over the past couple of months, that Bob Iger's took charge and gone, whoa, slow it down. You're you're delivering too much content and we need the qualities back. So they're slowing down their release schedule, as they should. We know that after this run of DC films that, let's be honest, the the only reason there's three DC films coming out this year is because they got delayed over and over again because of all the restructuring, shuffling about and everything. After this year, they have a little bit of a break before everything kicks off in 2025. So we will get a year with a bit of emptiness on the landscape for superhero franchises, and maybe that will let audiences get back on. But you keep delivering everything as just comic book, comic book, comic book, comic book. Yes, audiences like comic books, but audiences like something different as well. And they yeah. don't want to just be watching the, what they feel is the same thing every time. Because, yeah, as much as I've in, I enjoy the comic book movies... A lot of my fa- like enjoyments becomes comes from my love of the comics. But your general audiences don't read comics; they don't get the little extras and the nuances relating to like story no, specific things and elements in the comics. So they're just seeing the same thing over and over again: costumes, capes, CGI battle at the end. Yay, heroes win! It's it's worrying times. Like I've said before, is Guardians of the Galaxy that should be a success? If that isn't, then there's clearly a major problem and i think the same applies to the flash the flash is trailering really really well and because that's playing on the nostalgia of michael keaton in there as well it's catching an audience who probably weren't interested but that trailer sells that really well and the audience responses that i've seen for that have been like that looks really good it's also the flash is a known character in the dc shazam's not really well known but the flash thanks to having what eight seasons of a tv show the general public know this character now even though it's a different actor they know the character so that might draw their interest but they're the two tentpole films guardians of the galaxy and the flash for both marvel and dc that if they flop they they need to start thinking about a how big their budget should be going forwards because they're going to be losing money at a rapid rate if they keep it at 250 million each time and b whether they should be releasing so much content. Well, that seems to be the big part of the issue, doesn't it? Because we've we've been oversaturated. The amount of footage that ended up between 2021 and 2022 on the Marvel series, we were getting over 20 hours worth of superhero footage. And there's no sense of anticipation for any of these movies anymore. And we looked forward to it. You and I would get giddy. Now, let's not forget to take into the mix that the last spider-man movie did way better than any of the films that came out afterwards and people had that sense of anticipation and the batman did again very very well so maybe it's recognizable characters films like mobius uh films like craven the hunter kind of muddy the waters a lot because they are characters that nobody really cares about uh, and it feels like profiteering doesn't it chuck them in Somebody will go and see them. They'll have a big opening weekend and then boom, they kind of disappear. They're not building franchises around them. And I think people are getting a little bit bored with sort of the franchise building as well, that you have yeah. to see three films to understand what who those characters are and who that person is who makes an appearance. And rather than let's go with great storytelling, less formulaic, 
as you said, building up to a big CG battle and and Marvel taking chances. And the way they took chances with Captain America Winter Soldier, which was uh, the parallax view and uh, 70s conspiracy thrillers. So yeah. I, I think I think take taking chances. That's the same way that Joker took chances as well. We'll just have to wait and see. But But you're right. A lot is riding on Guardians of the Galaxy, which is, what, a couple of months away now? Yeah, it's only a couple of months away. So we'll wait and see. But, yeah, watch this space for more discussion because I think it kind of feels like the end of days for uh, a particular genre that is in need of reinvention. Anyway, let's move on to something joyful, shall we? Okay, so we said Gladiator 2 wasn't on our sequel bingo cards, but there's been some massive casting news over the last week. Uh, yeah, Barry Keegan from uh, Banshees of Inner is going to be in the lead villain role as the new emperor. And this, if it happens, that Denzel Washington is in talks to join Paul Mescal in the Gladiator sequel, is to reunite with Ridley Scott, which would be awesome news. There's, there is someone bringing gravitas to this particular film. Uh, the story for Gladiator 2 will see Lucius, who's now a grown man. When his father, Maximus, sacrificed himself to save him and his mother, it left a strong impression on him. And Crow has confirmed that he's not involved in the film in any way, because why would he be? His character's dead. We don't need a adventures through time approach that they were going to go for initially when this was first pitched. But the first draft of the feature was delivered last November. Scott, once again directing, this time from a script written by David Scarper. And uh, yeah, Gladiator. If the superhero films are going to go the way of uh, cowboy films, can we have gladiators back on the screen? I'll be happy with that. <laughs> well, they're planning to shoot this in Malta. And if you happen to be in Malta during the summer, they are looking for thousands of extras needed for this sequel. So if you happen to be about, you fancy getting into a movie, head over to Malta because the chances are they need so many extras. You've got the chance of a job. And you never know, you might be lucky enough to get involved with something that will be, because the first film did quite well, an awards-heavy Oscar winner, which leads us nicely into the 95th Academy Awards that took place last weekend. Before we talk about the actual awards that were handed out, uh, I just want to talk about, because I sit up every Oscar night and I watch the ceremony, and the past few years when we've reported back on them, I've not been that impressed with what I saw. No, not at all. It, because the ceremony's been a shambles. They've been trying to rejig it, you know, let's go hostless, let's do Twitter polls so that a certain fan base can get even more toxic. Yeah, all of that kind of element. This year, Jimmy Kimmel hosted. It was his third or fourth time hosting, and he's a fantastic host, and he yeah. held it together well. It did reference that slap quite a few times, right up until the very final moments when Jimmy Kimmel walks off stage at the end, and there's a sign like, "Not number of Oscars without incidents. And he just changes it from zero to one. And it's just like, yes. Um, but there was a, there was a, the humour was light. It was fun. There was some of the biting attacks, uh, like celebrity mentality going on. But it was a really good spirited event. It was a really genuine event as well. It felt structured. It was the best that I've seen the Oscars in a good decade and a half. It was enjoyable. Because usually I get to a point in the Oscars watching it where I'm just like, why do I put myself through this? But this year reminded me exactly why I put myself through it, because the Oscars ceremony this year was so sharp and so perfect. And it was helped by the winners, because the acceptance speeches from the winners were genuine. There was no showboating. There was no grandstanding. It was all emotional from the heart, because the winners came as quite a shock to quite a few people, but for the right reasons. Let's quickly go through them. 
Yeah, I mean, you've probably had a chance now. You've read through uh, what the winners were. It's over a week ago. So let's do a pacey run through of the awards, uh, starting with documentary feature film. This was controversial in the fact of, of what's happening in the world right now. And that was Navalny. Yes, which you can catch on BBC iPlayer. It's in the Storyville season, and I thoroughly recommend it. This was my joint first favourite, because I thought it would be this or Fire of Love. They're both very different films. They both tackle different subjects. Navalny, well-deserving of it. Thoroughly recommend. Get onto BBC iPlayer and get it watched. It's very, very politically relevant at the moment. Animated feature film. We called this... Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Yeah, my, my heart wanted Marcel the Shell with shoes on to get it, but I knew that Pinocchio would get it because the craftsmanship yeah. that goes into that stop motion, it's absolutely beautiful. So I've, I'd, I'd have been happy with any of the ones in the Best Animated Feature winning, but I'm so pleased that del Toro got it and his acceptance speech was lovely. It, it just shows his passion. For the international feature film, well, we know how well it did at the BAFTAs and it didn't have quite the success at the Oscars but All Quiet on the Western Front knocked it out of the park for Best International Feature Film. Which you'll remember I, I called that one, I said that that was a definite winner for that one. The others are good films, Close which I watched recently was a really heartfelt film but All Quiet was just huge in production volume. Original screenplay went to, and this was the start of seeing where the Oscars went this year, everything, everywhere, all at once best original screenplay i mean you can't really argue with it no. can you uh, uh, banshees of inner sharon would have been my second yeah that was on there. that was that was mine because i but still everything think everywhere all at once because of how it weaves everything together is such a f it's it's not just a best original screenplay for this year it's one of the most original screenplays of the past couple of decades Adapted screenplay was Women Talking. Thoroughly agree. Uh, like I said, when I reviewed it, it, for having a film which is primarily just women talking, it really maintains your attention throughout because of the well-scripted dialogue. It feels so genuine. So I completely agree with that one. I would like to have seen Angela Bassett or Kerry Condon would win actress in a supporting role, but it went to... Jamie Lee Curtis for Everything Everywhere All at Once and her reaction when her name was called out, was beautiful. I mean, we, we've seen Angela Bassett's reaction. That's been all over the internet, how she just didn't clap and she looked very, like, set back. And I can kind of get it because she did give a great, emotional, powerful role. I just feel that it's still an example of uh, how the people who vote in the Academy have a bit of disdain towards comic book movies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but Jamie Lee Curtis, really, a genuine, like, what? reaction her speech was so heartfelt she was like everyone who's worked in genre films because she's been overlooked so many times because she's yeah. primarily genre entertainment everyone who works in genre films we've won an oscar and it was all shout outs to all the underdogs that she believes that she comes from and she's got such a witty sense of humor and then she finished her acceptance speech by just saying my mum and dad were both nominated for oscars and then with a tear in her eye I was like i've won an oscar and then left the stage. And it was just like, you're close to tears yourself watching her do it. <laughs> I love that she's posted a photo since of her awards that she's got this season, including that fake award from Everything Everywhere All at Once that looks like a butt plug. <laughs> Actor in a supporting role. It, you know, I <laughs> I, I think Ki Hu Kwan, who won for Everything Everywhere All at Once, was great. But when you put him next to Brendan Gleeson in Banshees, or, or Barry Cogahern in Banshees. It was it was good and it was great to see him back on the screen, but but Gleason brought depth to 
uh, a character who was genuinely, genuinely at times unlikable, and yet you you felt for him every stretch of the way. And I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm for both supporting roles. I'm still not a hundred percent convinced that the right person won. I'm unsure with the best supporting actor because I think that all three of them. I'm happy with any of those three, Gleason, Keegan, or Kiyu Kwan. And seeing, again, it was another example of someone who didn't expect to be getting an award and his acceptance speech was genuine from from the heart. And it was all about how, you know, thank you for welcoming me back into the Hollywood circuit after so many decades away and really heartfelt. And, you know, he feels great to be a part of it all again. I thought it was great in it. I wouldn't say that he doesn't deserve an award, but Banshees just had amazing. And when you think about it, you keep you look at Banshees and you go, they were amazing performances. But it was nice to see him win the award purely for how what it meant to him. Yeah. And so I don't think I I don't begrudge him getting the award because it clearly meant something really deep to him to be accepted. That was a symbol for him that his return after being absent from the Hollywood industry for so long was welcomed. So actress in a leading role, we both called this and we I think we've both agreed that Michelle Yeo for everything everywhere all at once was was absolutely deserved. As I said, I would have loved Kate Blanchett to get it for Tar because she didn't you no longer saw the actress on screen, you just saw the character. But Michelle Yeo in Everything Everywhere All, all at Once, it was the performance of a lifetime. It, yes. we, she'll never get a chance to do a performance like that. No one will get a chance to do something like that. She got to play so many variations of a char- the same character. Absolutely well-deserved. Uh, Brendan Fraser for The Whale, for actor in a leading role. Uh, again, my, my heart was set on Colin Farrell, but um, I don't think you're going to disagree with that one, are you, Andy? No, um, you know how that film broke me, and it's, uh, it's his performance in it that really did it. And again, like Kihu Kwan, his acceptance speech was beautiful and from the heart because he's another one who was kind of like alienated by Hollywood for so many years. And this is his him being embraced. And there's a great behind the scenes thing afterwards when they've got all the photo shoots and like interviews with Kiyu Kwan and Brendan Fraser, like hugging and just saying, buddy, we've made it. We've made it again. They've let us back. And it's just great to see underdogs. And that's what this year seems to have been about. It's about the underdogs. It's not the big names. It's not the expected ones. It's the people who you've wanted to be recognized for so long, but have never had a chance. So I'm going to, I'm going to combine best picture and best directors because, as you now know, uh, the Daniels won for everything, everywhere, all at once for directing, and it won best picture. And which is, it's it's a not a particular Hollywood, especially Oscar kind of night. No, it's a genre film. It's a it, it's a genre film. It's a sci-fi bizarre multiverse genre film. This is basically what Doctor Strange could have been. But yeah, um, yeah it, it it was quite a surprise to see them acknowledge it. Now, if they can do the same with horror in a future year, that would be amazing. But, you know, it it's really is a step in the right direction because, uh, let's be honest, when the final categories were announced, everything everywhere all at once, if you had to put a £1 bet on it on all the categories that it's won in, you probably would have been taking home about £400, £500. <laughs> but as it got closer and the other awards started to recognise it, it started to become the favourite. So, you know, you don't get much money back because the Fablemans was in a lot of people's like, oh, well, that's clearly going to win because it's a love letter to Hollywood. And, you know, or Elvis, oh, well, that's going to win because, you know, Elvis. It wasn't the favourite at the start of this running, but it's shown that you should never, never write off any underdogs. We'll just quickly rattle through the last few, which are the uh, more technical, technical side of it. 
So you got cinematography, All Quiet on the Western Front. I did say that it was one of the most beautiful um, films of the year when I reviewed it. Film editing, Everything Everywhere All at Once, of course. Production design, All Quiet on the Western Front. Best score, All Quiet on the Western Front. It is a good score, but I would have loved Babylon to have won this one. Best song, need to give a shout out to this. Did I say that this had that, that this film had one of the best songs ever and then it wins the award? Natu Natu from RRR. <laughs> the scene in which it's in is just a joy and it was great to see them do the rendition of that scene on the stage on the night as well. It's a pleasure. And if you've, if you've still not watched RRR, get yourself onto Netflix and get it watched. It's one of the most fun films of last year. Uh, makeup and hairstyling, The Whale. Best costume design, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Visual effects, Avatar, Way of Water. Best sound, of course, it was going to be Top Gun Maverick. Animated short film, Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse. Yeah, it was beautiful. It, it's a beautiful one, and it was kind of obvious that it was going to get it. I'd have loved an ostrich told me the world is fake, and I think I believe it, because I think that was more inventive. Just but, for the title alone. Yeah, or My Year of Dicks. Um, but the Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse, yeah, I can see why it won. Documentary short, Elephant Whisperers, best live action short film, and this landed on BBC iPlayer and it's worth checking out, An Irish Goodbye. But just to, ra- just to round off on the Oscars, uh, the viewership figures came through for it and it was up on last year's viewership by 12% with a 4.0 rating and an average of 18.7 million viewers tuning in. So it shows that uh, this return to non-gimmick Oscars is bringing audiences back. No, I agree. I, uh, you know, I, I think they've got a, a good host in Jimmy Kimmel and... That's what, again, helps sell the show is, is having a good, reliable, reliable host. And, and I think some of these experiments from previous years kind of prove that stick to the formula. That's what, what folks want. Anyway, the rest of the news. So Quentin Tarantino is reportedly preparing to make a new film, The Movie Critic. It's 10th and supposedly final directorial efforts, which has already started the arguments online as to, well, he's already made 10 films. Yeah, but Kill Bill is one film. No, it wasn't. It was two films. Oh. Can we just go with what Quentin says? He says that this will be his 10th film. Movie critic. That's all we know. That's all that we know. The storyline is under wraps. Some sources have described it as being set in the late 70s Los Angeles with a female leader at its centre, which has led to the supposition that it's based or inspired by the legendary Pauline Kael, the essayist, novelist, and still one of the most influential movie critics of all time. We'll know more as it comes out, but it has been a few years since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 2019. So it was only a matter of time before Tarantino would settle himself back down again to uh, bring us something else movie related. And feel free to start your own casting speculations based on the fact that he does like to use a lot of the same actors. Yes. A couple of quick fire DC news. So it was rumoured, we speculated, but James Gunn will both direct and write Superman Legacy. Worst kept secret in Hollywood right now. Once it got to the stage where we were told that he'd been hired to write this script even before he was a producer, it was like, well, of course you're directing it, mate. This is going to be a younger Superman in his early days uh, with Clark Kent early in his career in Metropolis. We don't know much more about it at the moment, but I'm sure that James Gunn will keep leaking his own information as it goes. We know that Ben Affleck has said that he will definitely not make anything for the new DC universe. Absolutely not. I have nothing against James Gunn. Nice guy. Sure, he's going to do a great job. I just wouldn't want to go in and direct in the way they're doing it. I'm not interested in that. And this has started the usual toxicity online where people are misinterpreting what he's saying. We know that Affleck wants to make a Batman film. The Batman film that he wants to make, the tone of it, Matt Reeves is doing at the moment. There's nothing superhero that interests him. If he was asked to do a Marvel film, he'd want to do something like Daredevil. He likes the grounded hero approaches. He doesn't want to do capes and costumes. Hopefully that will put to bed 
all the speculation as to whether he's going to be doing uh, Bratman Brave and the Bold. He's not. He's stepping away from it. He's got his own films and he's got Ur coming out in a couple of weeks, which is why he's in the interview circuit at the moment. And the TV series The Penguin has now secured Theo Rossi from Sons of Anarchy, Michael Zegan from The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, James Maddio from The Offer and Scott Cohen from The Americans for the cast of The Penguin. All of them are going to have recurring roles over the eight-episode series, which is led by Colin Farrell, reprising his role as Oswald Cobblepot. And we know that Kristen Milioto as Sophia Falcone, Clancy Brown, as we reported, as Salvatore Moroni, and Renzi Phyllis, Michael Kelly, Shora Agadeshu, and Deirdre O'Connell are all in supporting roles as well. If you were a big fan of the Willow series that was on uh, Disney+, Plus, bad news, I'm afraid, there's not going to be a second series. It's been cancelled after just one season. So all those people who waited from the 1980s to see Willow again, I think it's over and I think it's done. I know that the showrunner and director of the show has been going against that news report and saying it's not fully cancelled. It's just been taken off the table at the moment and they might return to it at a future date. If that date doesn't get announced within the next, let's say, six months, let's be honest, it's properly cancelled. But it didn't have a good reception. It wasn't warmly embraced. No. I fell out of favour with it about episode three and four. It just it just wasn't grabbing me at all. If, if he's saying that he still wants to do it in one way, shape or form, maybe it'll get to tie up any loose plot threads, a limited movie. Who knows for the knows? station? But he, he's determined not to let it go. The Wicked two-part film now has a, an earlier release date for the first part of it. It was originally supposed to be coming out Christmas Day 2024, it's now going to be going for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, November the 27th, 2024. It gives it a good run into the Christmas period. They're expecting big things. The Wicked the Musical is huge on Broadway and the West End. It's absolutely got a huge following. I've seen it a few times. It's directed by John Chu, and it's going to star Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo. Um, in the lead roles of Glinda and El Faber, and I can't think of better casting. I am all on board for this. It's the se- it's a prequel to Wizard of Oz, dealing with the lead up to Dorothy's arrival in Oz. It's split into two parts, and it makes sense from the stage perspective as to why it's split into two parts. Otherwise, it would be too much to cram into one film, and it wouldn't quite get it. Also on board, we're going to see Michelle Yeoh in there as Madame Morrible, Jeff Goldblum as The Wizard, Stephen Schwartz penned the music and lyrics to the original Broadway show, is adapting the screenplay, and mark next year, Thanksgiving weekend, in your diary, with the second part opening in 2025, not too soon after. And finally, and sadly, and we hate doing this, uh, we have to report that Lance Reddick, uh, the deep-voiced, classy actor, who appeared in TV series such as The Wire, uh, Fringe. Uh, You'll know him from John Wick movies. Sadly passed away, suddenly, age 60, only a few days ago. Yes, we've had a bit more details on the projects that he's still got in the pipeline uh, this morning as well. But it was this was a shock news. And it came to us, we'd literally, you'd come in and seen a film, and within half an hour of you leaving was when the news started to break for it. He's one of those actors that you'll, you, everyone will remember where he first stood out for them. For me, it was when he popped up in Lost. That's when I first started to recognise him. Yes, And of then I started to see him everywhere. He's become one of those faces that, yeah, we said with that Resident Evil TV series that wasn't good last year, that he was it's the best thing in it. it. Yeah. He was worth watching it for, even though the rest of the series was a mess around him because he always gave something great to it. And in, 
recent years, he's been known to a huge audience thanks to his role as the concierge in the John Wick films, which he reprises that role in the film that comes out next week, which is now dedicated to his memory. And he's and he's going to appear in The Ballerina as well, the spin-off film. Yeah, he'd completed all of his scenes for Ballerina, the spin-off movie. He's also completed all of his work on William Friedkin's upcoming The Kane Mutiny Court Martial for Showtime. So that's still in the pipeline. He's also completed his scenes for Percy Jackson and the Olympians TV series where he plays Zeus. And more immediately, you'll see him in White Men Can't Jump reboot where he plays the father and coach of the lead character. He also is starring alongside Regina King in John Ridley's Shirley Chisholm biopic, Shirley. And he's also provided his voice as Hellboy for an upcoming video game, Hellboy Web of Weird. So even though he's gone from us, he's not gone at all from our hearts and we're still going to have him. Over recent years, he's also become known via voice to a larger audience. He's provided voice in animations, but he's also done video games. And two of the main video games that he's prominent in are Destiny and Horizon Zero Dawn. And the fans of Destiny all did an online game special tribute in response to the news. Uh, they, they've they shown the love for him via gaming. And his wife set, like, expressed her gratitude to them all, saying thousands of Destiny players who played in special tribute to Lance. Thank you. Lance loved you as much as he loved the game. It, it's a great loss. It, it is. Only 60 years old as well. Natural causes. There was no, no concerns of anything untowards happening. He's just uh, sadly passed away. And our condolences to colleagues, friends, and of course, family. And that is this week's The News. Andy, do you know, and we say this every week, that some people haven't subscribed yet, haven't left a like. Come on, guys. What are you doing? It doesn't take that much either, because it's literally, you're listening to us right now, aren't you? So you're on your phone. So open up your phone and uh, you see that, that thing that's playing at the bottom. There should be a little like thing there. Just click like and then find where you've got that from and click subscribe. And you don't have to hunt us down as a result. You don't even have to like wait until I post out the details on social media as the new episode drops. You will know before I post that out that it's there. So come on, get on it, guys. You're enjoying the show. You're listening along. You might as well subscribe. And you can get in touch with us across all of the socials. Drop us a line. Ask about our favourite films. Ask what films you want us to deep dive. Let us know what you like. Any questions? We've got answers. Any answers? We've got questions. All you have to do, (laughs) check us out on any of the socials because we are there. Yeah, just search for Filmfile UK. You'll find us around there. And it's podcast at filmfile.uk if you want to get directly in touch with us via email. Let us know anything about film. Give us more things for our deep dives. It's not like I've got 700 films listed at the moment to work through. And talking of deep dives, it's now time for this week's deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. So our deep dives for the last couple of weeks have all been based around the year 1973. Uh, It was the year of Andy's birth. That's why we've picked this particular year. That means when it's my birthday, we're going to have to talk about the films from, from my year. Yeah. So this was huge. Came out in December of 1973. Did massively at the box office. It was up for all kinds of awards. It was directed by George Roy Hill and it reunited Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And it is The Sting. The guy in the black hat with a gimp. The porters say he runs a braced game on the Century Limited. Picked him clean. 
name is Lonergan. Dylan Lonergan. He threatened to kill me. You're gonna go for him. You owe me 15 grand, pal. A game-changing heist movie. Fully restored in stunning high definition. Gonna go okay? Yeah, sure, hell easy. The reuniting of Redford and Newman had been anticipated after the huge success they'd had with George Roy Hill in Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. And this film, well, a complicated plot, is about two professional grifters whose plan is to con a mob boss, played by one of the best screen heavies, Robert Shaw. Swindler Johnny Hooker, whose partner is butchered by the henchman of Doyle Lonergan, a ruthless crime boss, seeks to take revenge, aiding him is Henry Gondroff, a con man, evading the FBI. This features a cool soundtrack, which in, back in 1973 was all over the place. It's based on David Mora's 1940 book, The Big Con, The Story of the Confidence Man. And the sting of the title is just incredibly well played. A massive critical and commercial success, hugely successful at the 46th Academy Awards, nominated for 10 Oscars, winning seven, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Film Editing, Best Writing, and Redford was nominated for Best Actor. The film also rekindled Newman's career after a series of big screen flops and regarded as one of the best screenplays ever written. The screenplay written by David S. Ward. Boy, this is a this is a great film. When you said it's got a cool soundtrack, this is just just a cool film. Yeah, it's just got a style. It's got a flair to it but without being showy. It feels grounded, but it looks amazing. And it, it, it paces along with the music. Yes. It never slows down. It's so joyous. Even, and it makes you, at the end of the day, every character in this would deserve to go down. They deserve, like everyone is an, a con man, a bad piece of work, a gangster, a hoodlum, a corrupt cop. Everyone, you've got every right to hate but it's impossible to hate most of them because they're so well-written and so imbued with so much life, so much energy, sharp wit, or just a, a, an underlying likability. Redford's character, Hooker, is an absolute piece of work when you th if you boil it down to it. <laughs> but you, what, you root for this whole thing to go through. And what really works with this, and this is a film that I jumped onto quite late in the day. It was only a few years ago that I first got round to watching this. This was one of my many. Oh, I really, really need to get this ticked wow. off. But since then, I've watched it four times. And every time it gets better and better because you start to see the play. And it is beautifully structured. And the way that yeah. it's structured. The, is... the title card set yes. of the setup, the, like all leading up to the sting itself, it playing through how a con man hook and then like, you know, the, the knockback and things like that. It's, it's all structured. But it's structured in such a great way that get to points in the film that you start to wonder who's playing who because it keeps you guessing as to what everyone's true intentions. And because you know from the first act that all of these people are nasty pieces of work, you believe at any point, any one of them could betray one of the others. Yeah, I mean... it pays off. It does, it pays off. There's, there's this sense of the audience being in on the confidence trick. You're not sure how the scheme's going to turn out. You, you get caught up in all the twists and all the terms and you are there because the characters have so much, so much charm. I mean, Newman just exudes charm throughout this film. Uh, it, it, it was regarded as one of the greatest American screenplays of all time. And I, I have to agree. Uh, you know, 
my love for Butch and Sundance it is one of my all time, if not my all time favorite film. And these guys just work so well off of each other. And these two actors know each other's style, know each other's bits. They understand how to get the best out of not just their own charm, but each other's as well. I say I've watched this multiple times. It gets better and better on each watch because on each watch you start to you start to appreciate the craftsmanship that went into this script. The story was inspired by the story of real life cons perpetuated by Fred and Charlie Gondruff and documented in a 1940s book, The Big Con, The Story of the Confidence Man. Uh, but obviously it then gets a bit more creative and embellishes it. Before the screenplay was made, screenwriter David S. Ward like, has said in interviews that he was inspired to write it while researching pickpockets. And so he wanted to research even more into how the con man actually does everything. And rather than it just being a simple either heist or a simple double play kind of a thing that we've seen in other con films, this one is all about that long con. And I love a film about a long con. Oh, me too. It's it's one of my it's one of my go to genres. I love a good a good swindle movie. I I I, I mean the the Grifters is a is a great film because it's all about sort of the the low end yeah. end of the con game. But I've always had that fascination. Put a con man film in front of me, I'll I'll watch it. I mean we we saw it recently on Apple Plus as Sharper. I, I, I'm always in. I I just love the intricacy of of a con movie, and this right to the very end keeps you guessing. And, and even when you think you know it, it turns again. And referencing Sharper with the con film, whilst they can be really creative and really fun and keep you guessing all the way through, it's one of the genres that has the huge risk of the final act kind of undoing all the good work that's been built up. And Sharper's an example of that, that the final act just doesn't quite gel and doesn't hold together. Whereas The Sting, the final act, pays off the rest of the film beautifully. It really, it, it keeps you as the audience guessing along and you feel that you've almost been conned slightly at the end because you were expecting this and that happened and it's cleverly done. It really is. the For me, this is the best example of a, a long con film because everything is, so, it's as though they structured it starting at the end and working backwards yeah. to lead up to there rather than telling it in a linear format beautiful film it is uh casting wise you can't get better than than newman and redford jack nicholson was once offered the lead role but turned it down hill wanted initially richard boone to play lonergan but much to the relief of producer julia phillips newman had sent the script to robert shaw uh, who was making the macintosh man in ireland to ensure his participation in the film to hold up against redford and newman is no mean feat you know you've got to have a you've got to have a bad guy who is as charming as as your as your leading men? Everyone I know loves this film. You know, it has that. It's just such an enjoyable ride. If you haven't had a chance to see it, go in with the least amount of knowledge uh, possible because you you're just in for just a, a wonderful, absolutely wonderful uh, turn of events. Yeah, can't agree more. Quick shout out to the supporting cast that you will have seen in supporting roles in a variety of films. People like Robert Earl Jones, who's always great on screen, Charles Durning, Ray Walton, Eileen Brennan, Harold Gould. This is a great names, but like you say, that the, the trio of Newman, Redford and Shaw being added into the mix really imbue it with a life and energy. Least said, the better about The Sting 2, which came out in 1983, 10 years later. Again, written by David S. Ward, this time directed by Jeremy Paul Kagan. An entirely different cast, which includes... 
Jackie Gleason, Mike Davis, uh, Terry Gar, Oliver Reed, and Carl Molden. You know, it's it's not a bad script, but the fact is, you just can't top the the first film. It was one of those ridiculous ideas. Even though it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Musical Score by one of my favorites, Lalo Schifrin, it holds a zero percent at Rotten Tomatoes. But if it wasn't naming those characters from the first film then i i think they could have got away with it because the script isn't bad mm. it's just not a great movie because of because of expectation and if you want to see this classic film and it is a classic where can you find it it's not available for free on any streaming service at the moment uh, but it does this is one that lands on bbc iplayer every now and then so it's worth keeping an eye out for in the future you can rent it on all services or why not treat yourself? Because we've said this is a beautiful looking film. It got a ultra HD Blu-ray release in 2021, which you can pick up at retail at the moment. And it's well worthy addition to anyone's media collection or con someone else into buying it. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a proper tribute to the sting. Uh, that's it for this week's deep dive. We'll be back again with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So many to get through this week. Uh, shall we kick off with Shazam, Fury of the Gods, Andy? Yes, let's let's get this out of the way. <laughs> How well do you remember your childhood? Like it was today. The wizard gave me superpowers. Shazam! Did I just save you while you were listening to this song? Let's get down to business. We are at war. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I just threw a truck at a dragon. Introducing the star of our show. Fury of the Gods. So after the events of the last film, a few more years have passed and Billy Batson and his fellow foster kids are still learning how to juggle their growing lives. Some of them are getting old and starting to worry about where their future will lead with their adult superhero alter egos, trying to save lives and solve crime within the city, but being seen as a general menace by the general population and the media. Then a vengeful trio of ancient gods arrives on Earth in search of the magic that was stolen from them long ago. Shazam and his allies get thrust into a battle for their superpowers, their lives, and the fate of the world. So, with that in mind, and as much as I really enjoyed the first film, even though it was flawed, it suffered from the usual DC stuff of, like, a bit of ropey CGI here and some contrivances. For what I loved about the first film was it had that, that family aspect, that heart aspect, and the emotion. And this is a film that followed through on that for me. It wasn't better than the first film. I enjoyed it just as much as the first film. I had a smile on my face throughout this, albeit mixed with the occasional tear at some of the more emotional moments. It had a fun vibe, but it was those family aspects that kind of brought it together for me because some of the action sequences, as good as they are, it felt like they got in the way at times. But overall, I had a joy. It had some great one-liners. I loved the way that the kids remained as kids when they met mentally when they shazammed, especially the youngest who, as a result, comes out with some of the most hilarious one-liner moments with a childish reaction to the things that are going on. And the issue that the first film had where Shazam seemed to be a different character to Billy Batson didn't seem to be that way. It's like they've taken note of like the criticisms last time round and gone, these are supposed to be the same person. And it felt properly like Billy Batson was Shazam at the same time. Because in the first film, Shazam seemed to be dumber than Billy was, which made no sense. You see, they, you've just picked up on one of my main issues with this. Now, we know that Shazam lore is that, that Billy and 
Captain Marvel when I was a kid, uh, and Shazam are are the same people. And Zachary Levi is kind of nicely goofy as Shazam, but I don't think in any way does he feel similar to how Asher Angel plays Billy. You know, despite the fact that the kid is now is is coming on to sort of eighteen, Levi portrays Shazam. Uh, his, his counterpart as as too big a kid, as a bit of a dummy, and I didn't get that. Actually, Billy is the more mature out of the two, and and Shazam is an absolute goofball. I think like Zachary Levi looks the part. I think he's got it down perfectly, but that didn't work for me. In fact, I started I started get really annoyed with Shazam and wanted him to grow up because I think by that stage. It wasn't even big. I thought I thought the charm of the first movie that it was big with a superhero edge, but they, they weren't the same character. Billy is grown up. Billy's working his way through life and Shazam's just kind of goofy and, and immature and, and, and I I didn't see the two correlating for me. I don't know, I, th- I feel that in this film, from my perspective, I saw that there was a lot more instances of Shazam trying to be more serious and trying to be more like Billy. I've, I've seen it with the first film. I overlooked the difference in their personalities by saying that Shazam is who Billy would like to be. If he had powers, he'd show off. He's acting childish because it gives him the chance to do it without repercussions. And in this one, it was like Billy was st- Billy was growing up and he's got his insecurities. He's still using Shazam as that escapism to be able to show off and like be something that he, he feels that he can't be be the kid that he never had a chance to be. But you see Shazam starting to actually reflect on where he is in life. You know, even even it opens up with him on a psychiatrist chair. And when it got to like towards the midpoint and there's the sit down table meeting with Hespera. And that's when you started to see that Shazam's trying to mature at the same time. And that's the point at which you could, I went, that's Billy Batson talking through Shazam. And that's how I interpreted those elements of it and saw them starting to gel the two personalities together. I thought the newly created Daughters of Atlas were a bit uninspired, but thanks to good work from Helen Mirren, and it's always going to be good work, Lucy Liu, and and, and I think Rachel Zegler is just a huge talent and can't wait to yeah. see even more of her. I thought the villains were a bit uninspired ultimately. I don't think they, they did an awful lot which just led into sort of the last act just being a CGI fest. Um, I, I wasn't bored. I think the film's got charm, not as much charm as the first film. I thought there was there was so much going on that it started to make my head ache. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad movie. Uh, if it's up against sort of Black Adam and even Thor Love of Thunder, uh, I, I still yeah. prefer Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania if you're comparing it to other superhero movies. And there is an element of fun. And as the as the film progresses into the the last act where I think it did have an emotional weight, I just found it overwrought. There was so much packed into this, so much stuff, family stuff, characters trying to fight for uh, recognition in, in a busy film. I thought Mary Marvel is an interesting character we didn't get to see enough of. I was hoping by the end of it, spoilers, that we'd be back down to the to the three and I'm going to use the old terms Captain Marvel, Mary Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. But it just felt as though some of the weirdness, the Skittles advert, uh, the gothic uni- unicorns, the, the magic pen named Steve were weird, but just got in the way of a, a strong story. 
And by the end of it, I was kind of pleased it was done. I love the product placement for Skittles. That's one of the things that had me absolutely belly laughing. And I love the unicorns because unicorns have been so misrepresented in entertainment throughout the years. And I've always been one of these people who loves the, the mythical lore that unicorns are not nice creatures. They are evil. They are sinister. And we got to see that representation in this. We got to see loads of mythological creatures. And being a fan of all the Greek and like um, Norse mythologies and everything and loving all that kind of monster creation, I was just smiling ear to ear, grinning like an absolute goon at every representation on screen. It's like, oh, what's hatching now? It's a minotaur. What's hatching now? You can, you can, I think you can probably see why I enjoyed this more than you because this was just played into all of my geekiness of like the mythological stuff that I grew up with. You mentioned Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu as two of the sisters. Helen Mirren, isn't it great to see that someone who used to be a, someone who was saw as respectable drama kind of like serious actor in the past couple of decades has been having so much fun and clearly loving what she's doing. I adore Helen Mirren for this because she's lent into genre entertainment and just in, gives it her all. She doesn't take it lightly. She gives a fantastic performance in everything she does. And in this, she really, really does sell it. It's a four-star film for Okay. Me. It's not great. It, it, it is flawed in the same way that the first one was. And it's like you said, the CGI battles, it's become tropish. It doesn't do anything that we've not really seen. And there's part of the final scenes that feel a little bit forced. But it won me over in the first 10 minutes. The first 10 minutes of this film had already sold it to me. Once we got to the bridge rescue scene and we have, it's even playing reference to a bad pun, but knowing that it's making a bad pun with a certain song playing on the radio when people are being saved. I was in. I knew what it was selling it as and I was there for it. It doesn't push the genre in any new direction, but it was a more fun film than most of the DC output and even some of the most recent Marvel outputs has been. For me, I wish I could agree with you. I, I, I loved the first Shazam movie. I thought they captured the character perfectly. This just felt bigger and weirder without having the right structure to, to build that on. I was entertained in parts. Um, I still like the cast, but for me, I found it ultimately to be tiresome. But that's why you get two reviews because we're not always going to agree, but we all stand by each other's review. What else have we got, Andy? I also got a chance to see Pearl that finally released in the UK this week. From the world of X, a stunning technicolor nightmare. You are not well, Pearl. It's clever, violent, and wicked. I will not let you leave this farm. Breathtakingly scary. Pearl, only in theaters. Directed by Ty West and starring Mia Goth in the title role, Pearl is a prequel to the director's previous film, X, yet functions perfectly as a standalone film without any requirements to have seen that other film. During the influenza pandemic in 1918, Pearl is living on a Texas homestead with her German parents whilst her husband is serving in World War I. Her mother is a domineering and controlling presence and her father is infirm, confined to a wheelchair and requiring constant care. Pearl longs for more from her life than farming and caring for her father, and she dreams of becoming a chorus girl, but also shows signs of being a disturbed individual through torturing and killing animals around the farm and inflicting abuse on her father. As the film plays out, her actions get more sinister, with every upset in her journey pushing her that little bit further over the edge. Shot in a technical fueled manner, Pearl is a very different type of film than X was. That film adopted the grindhouse Texas Chainsaw aesthetic of the era that it was set in. 
Opening with vibrant credits and title music, Pearl instead adopts a Wizard of Oz-inspired design, emulating that majesty of early cinema and making the dark proceedings feel somewhat surreal as a result, but in a good way. The stark contrast of the visual and musical style to the events that transpire serve well to unsettle, making many moments both amusing and chilling at the same time. It could be seen that, with her own obsession with stardom, the film is simply presenting how she sees the world around her. Mia Goth shines in the lead role and is absolutely mesmerising from the start. With her dreams and aspirations being blocked at every opportunity, it's easy to almost empathise with the character. But then something dead inside shines through a small glance from Goth and you're immediately reminded that this is someone who maybe we shouldn't be rooting for. Turning on a dime, Goth switches from delight and whimsy to sinister and disturbed with ease, adding so many complicated layers to the part to make Pearl feel so chillingly real. By the time the end credits roll, with Goth staring into camera with a smile on her face, you find yourself compelled to watch that held moment, which again manages to reflect so many different emotions buried under that smile, ensuring that you feel suitably unnerved by the end. Blood splatter chills are, of course, at play here, but not in the -the over-the-top nature of the previous film. Yes, there's a few gruesome moments, but the colourful palette makes them seem tamer, yet more disturbing as a result. West clearly demonstrates his love and understanding of horror genre once more, albeit in a very different manner than X. Here, the horror is played out so normally that it adopts a more psychological mind play overall. Pearl is a great prequel to X and has ramped up my excitement for the third film's release. But more than anything, this is the film that really showcases Mia Goth as a lead actor after many strong turns in her career. And hopefully we'll get to see a lot more of what she can offer cinema in the years to come. Still haven't seen X. So do I need to see X before I see Pearl or can I watch them independently? Uh, Ty West himself has said that he sees each of them as individual films that you can watch without the other. But if you watch them all, you'll get all the connections between them. You can watch it on its own. Okay. And next up is a Sky original, something you said you wouldn't ever do. But it is directed by Neil Jordan. It's got a script by William Mahanahan, who wrote The Departed, and it stars Liam Neeson. And it's a genre that I like, which is the private detective genre. And it's a character that I like, Marlowe, but I've not heard great things about this. Los Angeles, a city of angels, more like the city of dirty little secrets. People pay me to look into the activities of its finest citizens. I'm a private detective. The name is Philip Marlowe. How private are your investigations, Mr. Marlowe? What can I do for you? I'd like you to find my lover. He disappeared without saying goodbye. Did he have things to hide? Haven't we all? Based on the novel The Black-Eyed Blonde by John Banville, the film stars Liam Neeson as Philip Marlowe, the private detective created by Raymond Chandler. Hired by a glamorous heiress to find her missing lover, the detective discovers a web of deceit and crime linked to the disappearance, an element of underworld corruption that has permeated the echelons of the Hollywood industry. This is all typical generic detective noir from the start, and it follows every beat that you would expect from such a tale, so much so that it all feels far too bland and formulaic as a result. There are no surprise twists and turns that we haven't seen rendered so many times before, and the film limps along at a self-indulgent pace that's easy to zone out from without actually feeling like you've missed anything of importance. It is, however, salvaged somewhat by Jordan's style as a director, albeit mainly fleeting moments, where some of the trademark aspects of his work that fans will identify comes into play. Overall, the film looks great, albeit a little stoic, but when those small touches are added, it it imbues it with a promise of something better. 
but then fails to deliver. Casting-wise, whilst there are some great names present, Jessica Lange, Cole Meany, Alan Cumming, Danny Houston, Diane Kruger, most of them are given so little to work with that they are immediately forgettable and leave no lasting impact. In the lead, however, Neeson seems a perfect fit for Marlowe, and it did leave me somewhat wanting him to reprise the role again, but in a better tale. Mention must also be given to Adewali Akinanui Agbaji, whose presence as henchman Cedric brings some additional life and energy to the proceedings. But in the end, this is unmemorable stuff, let down by playing far too safe with the concept, and never allowing the story and the star to really showcase what it is that has made Chandler's creation stand the test of time. A Sky original tells you all you need to know in the UK. Nice idea, nice casting. Shame that it was so very generic. So let's quickly talk about The Last of Us. So for me, finally a video game adaptation that is worthy of being seen and worthy of its adaptation. For me, it's been a show that can happen when you stick close to the source material, bringing people connected to the success of the game and someone who can helm it that knows how to write hard. This has been an outstanding series and for me ended on a high which didn't do anything that I didn't know was going to happen because I played the game and as I've said many times, I love the game. Uh, it was brutal. It was heartfelt. It was a good, strong piece of television. I do have a few problems with the series, but not enough that's going to sort of take it away from from being a, um, a damn good game adaptation and a damn good TV series in its own right. If I was to say that I had any problems with the series, and it's a minor niggle that I don't think it's a major thing, is that I would have liked a few more episodes so they could have grown some yeah, of the side that, characters. That's a bit exactly more. for me, Andy. Exactly for me. It was very episodic. Each episode was just one set, one location, then the next location, next location. Whereas I think that some of them, they could have done two episodes worth to really get you under the skin of the rest of the world. But I don't think that's a problem. I just think that it's kept the pacing for a general audience. It's just that I, as the gamer, you know, I know how long I spent on this chapter. I know how much detail they could have got from this chapter. And so they could have drawn it out, but it doesn't feel like it's damaged as a result. It's only damaged from the perspective of people who already know the story. But knowing, because I've been sitting watching this with my wife and daughter, and they have loved every minute of it. They've been gripped throughout. Well, I'm going to jump in there because I've watched this with, with my partner and she, no intention didn't know anything about the game, no intention of it. And she thought it was a great bit of television. So uh, elements that, you know, like not being with Joel and Ellie for two episodes, you know, the, yeah. the fantastic third episode, which we talked about on the show and the uh, flashback to how we discovered that Ellie is immune. Because of that, I, I've got to agree with you. I would like to have seen more episodes with 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 Ellie and, and Joel because that's the heart of it. I, I think opening the last episode with understanding what happened to a baby Ellie uh, with a great appearance by Ashley Johnson, Ellie from the from the games, was a, a, a lovely surprise, which, again, what they did, they, they we had all the familiarity, those of us who knew the game perfectly. There were enough familiar aspects just to jump on you know even to the point where he gives ellie a, a lift up so she can drop down a ladder which is, yeah. you know that from the game <laughs> but you know there were enough elements of surprise to to keep it feeling like it was its own thing and of course we sort of knew 
what was going to happen in the last episode. And at that point, it was just the game. Um, even lines of dialogue directly taken. Yeah, why, why try not to, to fix something that is, what isn't broke? You know, the bit with the giraffe brought a tear to my eyes because it's beautiful and it allowed the characters to step out of this horrific world that they're in and, and just give you some pure joy. And Ellie needed that after her, her running with, with David and the cannibals in the previous episode where she does something that is abhorrent. It's interesting with the giraffe scene that we now live in an age where having a live animal on a set has to be broadcast as major news because, and I've witnessed this myself, I've there's been people online who said that the CGI for the giraffe was rubbish. It was a real giraffe. Yes. <laughs> and that's the world that we live in, that people want to over-criticise things. And so they'll just poke holes in things which aren't actually holes. They just want to say, oh, well, they couldn't even get that right. Well, it was a real animal. That's what the animals look like. You can't get righter than that. Strange world that we live in, but thankfully it's not the world of The Last of Us because uh, otherwise we'd be looking for clickers out the window. It's been a great series. It's been light on the clickers. Yeah, I'd like to have seen more. I would certainly like to see more infected. I think they that's, if anything, for me, that's where they drop the ball. That sense of horror that is out there waiting to happen. It, it was devoid of it. And now apparently they're going to talk about that in, in the next series. But yeah, if anything, it was the lack of, a lack of the infected. They should be a constant threat. It should be it was, it's what brought the world down. So it, they, they felt trivialised in this. But roll on season two. I'm, go- I'm interested to how they're going to tackle part two. Are they going to do it as one or two seasons? Because I feel there's two seasons worth because there's kind of two stories there. I'm also inter- like wondering how they're going to structure because the second game propels forward in time and then flashes back to tell that story from a different point of view. And... I'm not sure general audiences will latch onto it that way around, so I can see it being like episode to episode, cutting backwards and forwards. Well, rumour has it that it's going to be spread over two seasons, but uh, that's not confirmed. It is, at this stage, it is just a rumour. But we'll we'll wait and see, because yeah. so far, building on what they've done, all the, all the heavy lifting's done, can't wait. So I'm assuming we might get, we might get that next year. Who knows? Mason and Duckenberg are starting work on, on season two, so fingers crossed that's the reviews andy we know that we're going to get shooting with john wick four but anything else happening on the entertainment scale for this week it's not a huge week uh, particularly on the streaming services but at the cinemas we do have like you say john wick chapter four uh, which is almost three hours long but the reviews are very positive and say that it holds that three hours really well 80 for brady is out if you really want that and uh, one that i've got my eye on brandon cronenberg's infinity pool yeah, heard good things about that. Very Cronenberg. Over on streaming, we spoke about it last year. We both gave it the thumbs up. The Black Phone lands on Now TV and Sky. Well worth checking out if you didn't catch it at the cinema. And uh, if you're a younger member of the audience out there, Booney Bears Back to Earth. I, I, I'm not going to be bringing that to the show for review <laughs> next week. For oh, reason. good. And on Amazon, there's a film called Perfect Addiction, which I might check out. So it's quite light over the next week on the streaming services, but it's all about... Infinity Pool and John Wick for me. So join us next week when you'll hear our review of John Wick 4. And that, folks, that's us. We're done. We're out of here. Another successful show, Andy. We've made it to the end. But you know, but before we go, we've got to talk about our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that has uh, entertained us, treated us to moments of delight, things that we find to be neat. 
Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So I've got a backlog of neat things at the moment. Ooh, so what I'm going you. to do this week is I'm going to cheat and I'm going to throw two of them together. Now, as you know, I listen to a lot of biographies using Audible. So my neat thing, I suppose, is Audible and the biographies. I love a good biography, particularly of like Hollywood celebrities, film stars, etc. Because it's the film file. Of course, I listen to loads of things about film. And recently... I've gotten through a few of them. I'm currently on another one, which will probably make a neat thing once I finish this. But over the past month and a half, I've had the pleasure of listening to two very contrasting styles of biography read by the author's celebrities themselves. I had Seth Rogen's yearbook, which was a very comical look back at Seth Rogen's highlights of his life. It's not a full structured biography. It's a lot of anecdotes, but it's told in the way that Seth Rogen Tell, would tell his life and it's so joyously fun and you get to hear the inspiration that they had for films like Superbad there's moments of his own life that are completely reflected in that film They that film is so good about that coming of age because him and his mates Evan and all them they went through that and they were inspired by it to make Superbad including using the names of the characters were the names of people who they knew aside from his girlfriend who he had a crush on who he wasn't allowed to ne- mention the name of well worth listening to. Whether you're a fan of Seth Rogen or not, if you find him a bit choresome, his life story is quite interesting and still worth checking out. But I'm a, I'm a fan of Rogen anyway, particularly when he's on fine form. And so for me, I was sat on the bus, chuckling, looking like an absolute loon, sat on a bus chuckling to myself. And then the same happened when I listened to The Elephant to Hollywood by Michael Caine read by Michael Caine. This is his 2010 biography. He's had three biographies. He's done a more recent one in 2017, which I now want to jump on and play catch up with. But Elephant to Hollywood covers his life from start to finish. And he covers a lot of ground that his earlier 90s biography did because he thought that his career was over in the late 90s. And by the time he got past the Batman films, he realized I'm on a revival. And that's why he did Elephant to Hollywood. And it's a marvellous reflection of the people who he's met through his career, the people who told him he could be more than what he could be, the films that he loved doing, the films he didn't enjoy doing, the ones that you'll be surprised with that he actually has a lot of love for, that the ones that you might have not have seen. And told in that way that only Michael Caine do, can do, because he's got such a wit and a charm. And again... I found myself chuckling on the bus with my earphones in and realising that people on the bus are looking at me like I'm weird. He's just a great storyteller, particularly of his own life. Michael Caine's The Elephant to Hollywood is well a well-recommended listen, and you can pick it up on Audible right now. Well worth subscribing to Audible before and using your credits for these biographies. Uh, for me, it was the return of Ted Lasso, which landed on Apple Plus on Wednesday. Uh, and it was great to see Ted back. And this is, it was strange, this episode, because it feels as though we are entering into the end game. Now, we're only one episode in. It's been referenced that this will be the last season. And it wasn't kind of, Ted Lasso's never been laugh out loud funny, but this is, this, there was a lot of heart to this one and a lot of introspection. Yes, we've got to see the development of the characters and we've got to see how Rupert has now become the Empire and how Nate has become his Darth Vader. Always good to see Anthony Head on stage. But yeah. there was a sense of while there wasn't much in the way of laugh out loud humour, that there's very much a sort of a dark side with what Ted's going through 
what the the team's going through uh, and the fact that it feels as though we are building towards the end of the season and the end of Ted Lasso. But it was so heartwarming to have Ted back into your life because he is just one of the great TV characters, always has an enthusiastic look to life. And when you're down in the dumps, that's what you need. You need a bit of Ted in your life. So it's a climatic season. It feels different, but I'm with it right to the end. You can't have too much Ted Lasso in your life. And and did you hear, Andy, that, that Nike are making, uh, as part of its merchandising, an AFC Richmond jersey as well? Yeah. I've never had any football memorabilia <laughs> in my life, but that's what I need in my life. <laughs> Uh, that's it, folks. We are out. We'll be back again next week with another film file. Andy, always a pleasure. Yes, this has been a long episode. It has been um, a long episode. I keep looking at the time <laughs> thinking, I'm, I'm out in it. I'm, I'm going out in a few I, minutes. And interesting, Zencaster now, unless you subscribe to it, you get two hours at a time to be able to record. And we've got only got 10 minutes left. So uh, we've done well. I've, I've had my eye on the clock constantly to make sure that we're keeping to time this time because uh, I've got to edit this thing. Uh, but yeah, love this chat. I love that we didn't quite see eye to eye on Shazam. I, I do like it when we have a disagreement because we demonstrate how you can disagree but still be friends. Totally agree, Andy. But that's what this forum's all about. It's about the love of film. Though, not only are you a cheat, you're a gutless cheat as well. I've not got a week behind anyway, so I'm fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> Always avoid colorized versions of yes. black and white films, ladies and gentlemen. They're wrong That's on my, every level. It's my public safety message for today. What have we got for you this week? Well, I have no f***ing idea. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so we have our deep dive again into the year 1963. And we're going to be talking about the Paul Newman, Robert Redford star. Did I say 73? You're adding 10 years onto my life. I am, yeah. I'm, I'm adding my life into it. Um, Black Panda. Uh, Black Panda. Black Panda. <laughs> Although, if you talk to the hashtag, hashtag brigade this weekend, they're convinced that Zack Snyder's going to come back and save the world. Um, they're doing another one of their little Twitter campaigns, and it's a joke. They've got up to... I think they got up to about 50,000 impressions on the thing, but some of them have been numbering the posts that they put out. One of them got up to 500. So, you know, do the maths. There's not a lot of people out there. Um, but anyway. Well, I, you know, just to go back into that very quickly, I think the rot started with the Snyder films because yeah. people saw, you know, most of the DC output didn't do that great. Now, Man of Steel, uh, Batman v Superman did very, very well. Suicide Squad didn't. Justice League didn't set the the, the world on fire. Um, the thing is, Batman, even Batman versus Superman, it you know it it made profit, but with those two major characters and including Wonder Woman turning up in it as well, that's your three, that's your holy trinity of DC, your most recognisable characters. That should have been past a billion, but it didn't. Uh, talking of uh, Zack Snyder, he seemingly confirmed that the oh, Snyder he's Cut not confirmed anything. <laughs> Seemingly, I did use, and I'll, I, I was doing, I was doing air quotes, but you can't see that. Please, Zach, if you listen to this show, which you probably don't, because I've criticised you too much, um, <laughs> if you listen to this show, just put your fan base in their place because they're unbearable at the moment. An awards-heavy Oscar winner, which leads us nicely into. I mean, I, I, that that was a forced segue. Wow, that was great. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> made it to the end. But you know, this is the end. But before you we go, fearful friend, <laughs> we've got to talk about because we demonstrate how you can disagree but still be friends. Okay. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking about that. I was just trying to read through this this quote. <laughs>